Oh, right. Uh, I have a, a very important gift to give to everybody. And uh, the timing is not great because I know we've all just eaten cake, but I know there are still some people in here who are bound to be hungry. So uh, one of my many favorite cakes, uh, I have Cherry Bakewells. Yeah. Cherry Bakewell fans? So um, if you're not too full and you would like one, let me, um, someone crack those open. Sim, do you want to crack that box open? Pass them around, enjoy. I'm just kind of, I'm just buttering you up really so that you'll listen for longer. <laughs> Lauren, do you want to open those? There you go, ma'am. Can never have too many cakes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I shouldn't have given them to them. <laughs> Hand them around, ma'am. So, I, I left the boxes sealed, obviously, because I thought you might be suspicious that I'd done something to them. So no, they are, they are just straight from the shop. Well, okay, while you're, um, while you're opening those, as I said earlier, the theme of our weekend is the resurrection. And to be honest, there are all sorts of themes that we could have gone with, aren't there, for a weekend like this. All sorts of important things that we could be talking about. We could be talking about how to reach the lost, how to engage with our culture. We could be talking about how to grow in assurance. We could be thinking about how to address our trials and difficulties, how to deepen our spiritual lives, or just how to get to know God better. Why, why spend a whole weekend just talking about one thing, and why make that one thing the resurrection? Well, the simple answer is, is that the resurrection really matters. Just listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, our lives are full of all sorts of things that really vary in importance. Some things in life are wholly unimportant. Others are somewhat important. A few things are very important, but nothing, Paul says, compares in importance to the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are, he says, matters of first importance. There is no more important moment in all of human history, nothing more important in the history of the universe than these two events that took place right here on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. They're absolutely central to history. They're absolutely central to the message of the whole Bible and Christ's death and resurrection are of absolute central importance to our lives today. And so what we want to consider this weekend is how the resurrection in particular does exactly that. How it speaks into every area of the Christian life, into all of those um, important topics actually that I just listed, that it would have been good for us to spend the weekend talking about together. The resurrection actually impacts and speaks into all of those important areas of our Christian lives. Uh, and yet surprisingly, in the history of the church, at various times, some people have tried to argue that the resurrection just isn't that important. That either it didn't really happen or that it doesn't really matter if it, if it really happened or not. And the reason for that has often just been 
embarrassment. So forget about not talking about Bruno. Sorry to put that in some of your heads if you've seen the movie. This is, we don't talk about the resurrection. No, no, no. I refrain from singing it because the tune, once it's in there, does not leave. The idea that someone rose physically from the dead, that's, not, that's just not credible, is it? It's a really hard sell to convince modern people living in our scientific, technological age that a man literally rose from the grave. So no, some Christians have thought, no, no, no. If we just remove the resurrection part, it will surely make Christianity more believable and palatable and attractive to our 21st century world. The problem is that without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no salvation to be found in Jesus at all without the resurrection. Listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Paul doesn't mince his words here. It's not enough that Christ died. It's not even enough that Christ died to take the punishment for our sins. If he wasn't raised, your faith is futile, fruitless, vain, pointless, useless, worthless. Hands up if you had a cherry bake well. Few people. Some people have more self-control. I don't need any more cakes for today, but some people have gone for the cherry bakewell. How many people who ate the bakewell left the cherry? Have we all had the cherry? We're all cherry eaters. Nice. Maybe some people refused the cake because of the cherry. How good is a cherry bakewell if you don't eat the cherry on top? I, well, you, yeah. I mean, the cherry's nice, but it's still, a, it's still a reasonable cake, isn't it? It's a decent cake without the cherry. I think you should have the cherry as well, but you can do without the cherry. The resurrection is not simply the cherry on top of the Christian cake that you can take or leave as you prefer. Christianity is not worth dealing with at all, says Paul, if you don't have the resurrection. You might as well throw away the whole gospel cake this instant if Christ didn't actually rise physically from the dead. If he didn't rise, you are still in your sins. Your Christian friends and family, Paul says, who've already died, they've in fact perished forever. If Christ didn't rise and you still think it's worth being a Christian without the resurrection, well, Paul says you're of all people most to be pitied. You're wasting your life on this Christian stuff if Christ didn't rise. But the good news is he did rise. The biblical and historical evidence is just compelling. God's word is certain. And the fact that Jesus rose really does change everything. And this weekend, we're going to look at four key ways that the resurrection of Jesus powerfully changes our lives. Uh, and let me at this point mention my indebtedness. I meant to bring it in with me, uh, but to a particular book by a guy called Sam Albury. Uh, oh, actually, many of us know Sam Albrecht because we've been listening to his podcast uh, in life. But uh, he wrote a book called Lifted on the Resurrection. And it's a book of just four chapters. And you think, four chapters, we've got four messages. Hang on a minute, what's been going on here? Yes, we've stolen um, those four chapters, at least in terms of the, uh, 
the uh, themes that he covers in each of those chapters. I've drawn quite a bit on his content, uh, although I suspect when Tom comes and speaks to us on Sunday morning, his content's going to be much more original. Uh, but I've drawn somewhat on uh, Sam Albury, so just wanted to give the man credit where it's due. Tonight we're going to look at how the resurrection gives us assurance about Jesus and our salvation. Tomorrow morning we're going to see how the resurrection transforms who we are here in the present. And then we'll have a Q&A as well tomorrow, we'll talk more about that a bit later. And then tomorrow afternoon, we're going to see how the resurrection gives us a sure and certain hope for the future. And finally, on Sunday morning, best of all, Tom will tell us how the resurrection equips and empowers us for evangelism and mission. So we've we sort of called them, um, uh, tonight is resurrection assurance, then there's resurrection transformation, resurrection hope and resurrection mission. Okay, so let's get on with this one. Tonight's theme, Resurrection Assurance. I want to show you in particular how the resurrection assures us of two vital things. We're going to see that the resurrection assures us of who Jesus is and the resurrection assures us of what Jesus has accomplished. So just two points this evening. First one, the resurrection assures us of who Jesus is. Now, just take a little look around you at the moment. Look at the other people sat around you in this room. How do you feel about these people? Don't, don't say it aloud. That could, could be disastrous on the first night. Perhaps you see a lot of long-time friends. Perhaps you see lots of people you don't know so well, but you'd like to get to know better this weekend. But let's assume that so far, in spite of the Nerf war, your, <laughs> your impression of the other people in this room is that they're, they're okay, they're quite nice. They seem like good people, generally speaking. I don't expect it's really crossed your mind, therefore, to have them arrested and put to death. Am I right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> worrying the uh, non-committal there. Now imagine Jesus was sat amongst our group tonight, sat in this room. How would you feel about him? Have you ever wondered why people wanted to put such a supremely good man like Jesus to death? It seems like madness. And yet 2,000 years ago, a crowd of seemingly upright and sensible people turned on him violently and demanded that he be crucified. And the fundamental reason they did it was because of who he claimed to be. So let's go back to the beginning of one of the Gospels. As early on in Jesus's ministry as Mark chapter 2, we see the religious leaders shocked at Jesus's claim that he can forgive a man's sins. And in Mark 2, verse 7, uh, we, we um, hear them speaking or actually hear their thoughts and they think to themselves, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So these religious leaders, they're, they're pretty sharp. They know only God can forgive someone's sins and they're not willing to have Jesus blaspheme by claiming that he himself can do what only God can do. And it's a pattern that gets repeated all throughout the Gospels. Jesus claiming things for himself that he and his listeners know can only actually be true of God. And while some people were willing to accept that he really was God, others started looking for stones to throw or cliffs to push him off or eventually a cross to nail him to. All because they couldn't bring themselves to believe this 
mind-boggling nature of his claim to be God. And many people in our world today are much the same. They're happy to think of Jesus as an especially good man who said some especially good things, but they struggle to accept his most important claim of all, that he is not only man, but God. Why? Because that would change everything, wouldn't it? It would mean that Jesus is no longer just a take-it-or-leave-it example to follow. He'd actually be our creator. He would be worthy of all our devotion and obedience and praise. And so the default human position, the bent of our hearts naturally, is to assure ourselves that, no, he's just, he's just a nice guy. He's just some distant historical figure. Because that seems much easier to live with. Except for the fact that it actually ignores actual history and reality. The reality that Jesus is undeniably God in human flesh. And nowhere has that been proven more incontrovertibly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, than in his rising from the dead. The resurrection is vital here for proving to us who Jesus is. We, I think we sometimes miss this when we, when we read our New Testament. But it's the resurrection that the apostles appealed to more than anything else to prove to those they were witnessing to Jesus' true identity. So if you go um, have a read of Acts at some point, notice how much the apostles speak about the resurrection. They're speaking about the cross of, as well, of course. They're telling people how they can be saved. But the, oftentimes it looks like the highlight of their message is the fact that Jesus not only died, but particularly that he rose. And in particular, the resurrection assures us of three key things about who Jesus is. Okay, so just to be clear, we're still under point number one, but I've just got three subheadings. So three things it assures us about who he is. The resurrection assures us, first of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to how Paul begins his, his uh, richly gospel-filled letter, his letter to the Romans. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and this is the key bit for tonight, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you hear what he says there about the resurrection? Christ had always been the pre-existent son of God. He'd always been the second person of the Trinity, even before he took on flesh and came to earth and, uh, amongst other things, started off the whole Christmas thing. But it was at the resurrection that Paul says God chose to declare and demonstrate his son's divine identity, his godness in supernatural might and power. It was at the resurrection that Jesus, the blasphemer, was proven beyond all doubt to have actually been telling the truth all along, that he really was and is the Son of God. So do you see already how the resurrection changes everything? It removes all our excuses where we say, I can't know for sure if Jesus is really God. The resurrection tells us we need to take what Jesus says and does with the utmost seriousness. It tells us we won't be let off the hook for ignoring or rejecting him, but it also tells us that we don't need to doubt 
or worry that Jesus might not truly be the Son of God. We don't need to live in fear or uncertainty. The resurrection proves that Jesus really was and is God, become man. That's the first thing it tells us about his identity. The second thing the resurrection assures us of is that Jesus is the king. Uh, Picture for a moment Peter, if you can, on the day of Pentecost. So again, we're back in Acts chapter 2. You know that, that amazing, exciting day, the Holy Spirit has come. Peter stood there before a great crowd. Peter, a man who has been utterly transformed from just a few weeks earlier when he was denying Jesus, running away as Jesus was taken to the cross. And Tom's going to talk more about, a bit more about that on Sunday. But here's the one thing I want to draw out from that little episode right now. What is Peter preaching to them? He's preaching the resurrection. Here's what he says. This Jesus, he tells the crowds who you crucified, this Jesus, Acts 2.32, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. And then he tells them what this resurrection proves. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, that's a wonderful word, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, the thing to realise here is that Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ is his title. It means Messiah, uh, anointed one. It speaks of him being God's anointed king. So the resurrection is designed to help us know for certain that Jesus is none other than the, the promised Christ. He's none other than the long-awaited king. Uh, Now, did anyone enjoy studying kings and queens at school? Or did you not even do that? Maybe they've done away with that. Anyone learn a few kings and queens in the past? Yeah, Tom's on it. Tom's obviously older than most in the room. Or just wiser. For most of us, the promise of a king probably doesn't do much to excite us. So if you ever have studied the kings and queens of England, you'll know that some of them were just real rotters. Some of them did some good, but none of them were perfect. And even now in our democracy, our elected leaders often disappoint us. So it's easy for us to miss the thrill of hope and excitement that ought to go through us when we hear about the promise of a truly good and perfect king. And I think there are times when works of fiction really capture the idea of a a, a, a good and Uh, glorious king so well. Uh, Anyone, I know because it's warm in here. In fact, do we want to actually open some windows? Is that helpful? As long as no one falls out like uh, Eutychus did. (laughs) Don't sit too close. Uh, But also, let me me keep you awake with this. Uh, Anyone, give me some shout outs for excellent fictional kings that you've come across. Nice, there we go, yep. Very good. Sorry? Oh, Peter Pevensey, nice, yeah. Oh. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> nice bit of rivalry, excellent. Any others? Can you think of any more? Arthur, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, if I, yeah. Yeah, I think, yes. Yeah. That's cool. All right, well, they, yeah, I, excellent. We'll stop there because those are the ones I was thinking of. So, <laughs> great minds thinking alike there, excellent. Um, so, I thought of King Arthur and the heroism of Camelot. I thought of Aslan. Uh, but we'll throw in Peter as well. Well done, Sim. That is a good one as well, definitely. Um, the joy of having the great lion in your midst. 
And I thought of Aragorn and the return of the king to Middle-earth, you know, pushing back the darkness of Mordor and making peace between the nations. Well, the, the Jewish people didn't have those works of fiction, and you won't be surprised to hear that, but they did have their own hero king, a real historical hero king called David. Now, he wasn't perfect, as I'm sure you know, he, but, he, but he did have some of the traits of their ideal king. And they also had the promises of God that one day he would send a king like David, but one who was infinitely better, wiser and stronger as well. A king who would reign supreme forever, bringing unending joy, unending safety, unending peace, unending prosperity to all of the nations of the earth. This promised king was to be the kind of king that all the best fairy tales and stories try their best to capture. Like Arthur and Aslan and Aragorn all rolled into one, but with this vital difference that one day this king really would walk onto the pages, not of a storybook, but of actual history. But how could people be sure to recognize this king when he comes? How can we be sure of his identity today? The answer, you'll start to get the hang of this soon, the answer is the resurrection. That's the message Peter is preaching. Here's what he said again, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the King. The resurrection proves that Jesus is this long-awaited King. And this is the most glorious news. The one who is far greater uh, than David, a far greater King than all of those fictional Kings put together. This King has really come. He has died and risen and been exalted and his name is King Jesus. And he is the rightful, mighty and gracious Lord of everyone and everything. In the resurrection, his sovereign rule has been proven and established. And the third and final thing about his identity that the resurrection proves is that Jesus is the saviour. So he is God, he's the king and he is the saviour. Now, um, I noticed recently, uh, I can't remember where I saw it because I haven't been dealing with one of these uh, in recent times, but I saw it somewhere. When you write down your details on a marriage certificate, oh, I know where I saw it. I was, I was uh, looking at people's ID for DBS checks and someone gave me their marriage certificate. And uh, I noticed one of the things you have to include on there is your occupation at the time of getting married. So uh, it's a bit unfortunate if the mo uh, the, whatever stage of life you get married, if you get married, uh, if you're not yet in your dream job, that's a bit sad because it will forever more state on your marriage certificate that you you know, we're sweeping the factory floor or still working at McDonald's or whatever. But I understand as well that on a death certificate, they include your last known occupation. So hot tip, if, if you get married and it's not your, not your dream job, at least make sure by the time you die that you're in a, the job that you wanted, then it's on your death certificate and it's memorialized forevermore. It's worth ending your life with a an especially interesting occupation. Keep people amused when you're gone. But what if you had to fill out Jesus's death certificate? What would you put as his last known occupation? Carpenter, preacher, healer, troublemaker? Well, let me suggest the very best thing to put down as his occupation would be savior. And yet that's not what the chief priests and the scribes would have written at all. Because at the crucifixion, they were busy weighing up the saviour occupation credentials 
of this naked, bleeding, dying man before them, and they didn't think he was much of a qualified saviour. Do you remember their mocking as they gazed up at him? He saved others, they said. Oh, he cannot save himself. And what they really meant was, what kind of a poor excuse for a saviour is this? How could he possibly save anyone else when he can't even come down from the cross and save himself? And the irony was, of course, that Jesus could only save others if he made the decision not to save himself. But who was right about Jesus's occupational credentials? How can we be sure that the crucified Jesus really is the one true saviour? Say it aloud. <laughs> it's the resurrection. That'll be the one thing we remember in years to come. Is that, oh, it was that weekend where we actually go to the resurrection. Um, but still. When Peter and the other apostles later on stand before the same chief priests who previously mocked Jesus as he was dying, here's what Peter says to them, Acts 5 verse 30. He tells them, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour. Now in our world of online media and slick advertising, we are bombarded today by people and lifestyles and products and images that promise to change our lives for the better. So many things that promise to save us from boredom and isolation, depression, bad habits, illness, things that even promise to hold off death. There are a thousand mini saviors to choose from in our world today, but there is only one true God-given saviour who can save us from our greatest problem of all, who can save us from sin and separation from God. His name is Jesus. And God has assured us of his saviour credentials by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection assures us of who Jesus is. Secondly, and finally this evening, and I promise this one is shorter as well, the resurrection assures us of what Jesus has accomplished. Um, let's do a show of hands for this. When was the last time you had to sign something physically with a pen? Uh, did anyone? Two days ago. Two days ago. Can we ask what you signed? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yep. Uh, about a week ago. Okay, cool. Anything exciting? Uh, ethics form. Cool. Anyone else remember recently? Just hands up if you've signed something recently. Hands up if you haven't signed anything for a long, long time. Okay, so that's, yeah. I don't think it's so common these days to have to sign something with a pen, but, but even in our digital and increasingly paperless world, signatures are still important to authenticate the things that we do. So important things still require a signature. If you want to go and buy a car, you have to sign to show that it's yours, to take ownership of it. If someone builds a new house, it needs to be signed off to show that it meets building, building regulations. If you want to receive a university degree, as I know some of you are hoping to receive, someone important in the institution, in the university, has to sign a certificate to show that it's for real. And uh, if you want to make a big purchase online, you have to give often some kind of at least digital signature, like a password, to prove it's definitely you. Authentication, signatures matter. 
to us still in this world. And authentication matters to God as well. And nowhere more so than at the heart of Jesus's mission. Let me explain. The Son of God came to earth as a man in order to die in our place for our sins. Mark 10, 45, perhaps you know this verse, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, ransom is the price paid to free someone from their enslavement to something, to buy their freedom. So what we're being told is Jesus came to give his life to purchase our freedom and forgiveness. But how can we really be sure that it worked? Ever thought about that? How do do I know that it worked? That's the claim. But was it effective? This, after all, is a matter of life and death. Heaven and hell hang in the balance and depend on Jesus' death for our sins. What What if he only paid half the price? or he only got 85% of the way there? What if his death only covered your sins up to yesterday, but not your sins today or tomorrow or for the rest of your life? Have you ever found yourself queuing up in a shop to buy something that you really wanted or you really needed, only to find that when you got to the till, you haven't quite got enough money or you haven't got enough in your bank to pay for what you're after? What if Jesus' death was like that? What if it was paying for some of our sins, but not quite enough to stretch to all of our sins? That would be devastating because sin is deadly serious. The penalty for even just one remaining sin is death and separation from God. That's just a reflection of how holy God is and how offensive sin is. So how can we be sure that Jesus' death was so all-sufficient that not a single one of our sins could slip through the net, just unseen, oh, it's got through, hasn't been paid for, forevermore separating us from God? How can we be sure? I'm not going to make you do it. The resurrection. The resurrection is God's signature on the certificate of our salvation. It's his signature to show that our sins have been paid for in full. And in fact, so important is the resurrection in showing that our sins are paid in full that Paul can sum up the gospel like this. And let let me invite you to turn there. I've not been uh, asking you to do that much, but have a look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25, because this is a fascinating verse. um, And it's the last one we're going to look at this evening. Romans 4, verse 25, Paul writes, Christ was delivered up, that's talking about his death, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, if you know anything about justification, you might be thinking to yourself, hang on, I I thought that it was through faith in Christ's death that we're justified, that we're made right with God. Well, that's certainly true. But what Paul is stressing here is that the resurrection is like God's signature that signs off on that justification, that signs off on that certificate that says you are right with God. So that if anyone, Satan or otherwise, were to accuse us by saying, hang on, what right have you, you sinner, to think that you could possibly be forgiven and accepted into a right relationship with God? as if God would accept you. What are you thinking? To which we 
could confidently answer in response, not only was the Son of God delivered up to death on the cross for every one of my sins, but God also raised him for my justification, proving once and for all that my debt has been paid and paid in full. I wonder if you've uh, heard the account of the much-loved Puritan John Bunyan. Maybe you know of John Bunyan because you've heard of his most famous book, A Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But uh, uh, John Bunyan had a deeply troubled conscience as a young man at the time of his conversion. And when later in life he was put into prison for refusing to stop preaching the gospel, he remembered how he used to despair in his youth when he thought of heaven and hell. Believing, he said, that it was too late for me to look to heaven, it was too late for Christ to forgive me. When he tried to do better, he said, my peace would be in and out sometimes 20 times a day, comfort now and then trouble presently. So his conscience was just condemning him over and over again. This was a young man deeply aware of his sin, but unable to know and feel for sure that God had truly forgiven him. But then he writes these wonderful words looking back. He says, But one day, as I was passing into the field, with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet that all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness, for that was ever before him. Moreover, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today and forever. And then he says this, Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. From that time, those scriptures of God quit troubling me. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. What John Bunyan was realizing was that not only had Jesus died to ransom sinners, but that he'd also been raised to the right hand of God for the Christian's everlasting justification. So that on good days and on bad days, however weighed down he was by his sin, his, his, John Bunyan's righteousness was alive and well in heaven. For his righteousness was the risen Jesus himself. Nothing Bunyan did or failed to do could ever change that reality. The resurrection was the proof of his free and full forgiveness. Isn't that glorious and true of every Christian? Now let's finally and briefly, quickly answer one more helpful question. Why did it have to be a resurrection? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't God come up with some other sign instead to assure us that Christ's sacrifice had been enough to pay for our sin? You know, God's got an infinite imagination. Why didn't he think about writing it on a cliff face or shouting it down to us through a megaphone? Why did he choose Christ's resurrection as the guarantee? and the signature of sins forgiven. Well, it's because the penalty of sin is death. 
Death is what sin earns and deserves, Romans 6.23. To save sinners, Christ had to bear sin's penalty. He had to die. And if by his death he paid the price in full, he equally had to rise. Jesus had to rise if all these sins had been paid for. If sin was defeated at the cross, then so too was death. And therefore Jesus had to rise. Death could not hold him if the price had been paid in full. And so he rose triumphant from the grave. And let me just read you this from Sam Albury from the book I mentioned. He says, The cycle of sin and death in which we naturally live has finally been broken. Christ has triumphed over sin once and for all. It is therefore the resurrection of Jesus and can only be the resurrection of Jesus that assures us of salvation. Only the resurrection can show us that our sins have been fully dealt with and that death is now no longer our destination but simply a gateway to a new and perfect life. The resurrection shows us that there is nothing we need to add to the death of Jesus to find acceptance with God. The cross is not a starter pack, he says. It is not God stumping up even most of what we need so that we can fish around in our pockets and make up the rest. By dying and rising for us, Jesus has closed the deal. God has signed for it and his signature is the resurrection. And that's why the symbol of biblical Christianity for so many centuries has simply been an empty cross. I don't know if you've ever noticed one of the key differences between uh, Roman Catholic churches, most Roman Catholic churches, and most Protestant churches. In the Roman Catholic church, you have a crucifix. You, you have Jesus still hanging on the cross. It, it speaks of the ransom paid, certainly, or perhaps of a ransom still being paid, but it misses the point that Christ is not there anymore. It, it, that crucifix with Christ on the cross is missing the resurrection. But an empty cross, like many Protestant Christians have and wear, well, that speaks of a ransom, not just paid, but also received and accepted. It speaks of sins forgiven and death being no more. It speaks of a signature on the certificate of our forgiveness and our justification. It speaks of the doors having been flung wide open, of no more separation from God. Of all of this, the resurrection is our glorious assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy towards us. We thank you that you sent us a saviour, a king, your own son, to die in the cross in our place for our sins to pay our debts. But Lord, we thank you too that he rose from the grave. Thank you that you have not left us in doubt. You have not left us uncertain. Lord, you have proven who he is and all that he has accomplished by his resurrection from the grave. We, we thank you for that assurance this evening, Lord. And we ask that you would work that resurrection, that assurance, deep down into our hearts. Lord, where we struggle to feel assured, where we find ourselves doubting or uneasy, guilty or sometimes condemned, Lord, would you impress upon our hearts
the promise that is held in the fact that Jesus rose. Lord, would you lift our eyes to see that our risen Saviour stands at your right hand right now, our justification forever, our righteousness forever before you, so that we can never be condemned. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.